smart brands already use artificial intelligence. Join us at the Digiday AI Marketing Summit in Santa Barbara, California from April 11th to April 13th. Executives from Pfizer, Equinox, Samsung, USAA, and many others will discuss how they are using AI and machine learning to better invest their media dollars, to improve customer service, and to curate content. To find out more, visit digiday.com slash events. See you there. Hello and welcome to Digiday Live, our podcast where we bring you the best sessions from our many summits around the world. I'm Digiday producer Aditi Sango, and I'm back with another session from our European Publishing Summit held in Monaco. Last year, we saw a lot of publishers expand globally. Our Digiday Plus research shows that 70% of publishers think international expansion is important to their business strategy. But expansion can often mean siloed teams, little connectivity between businesses, and lack of a streamlined strategy on various fronts. So in this episode, I have the keynote session from Jamie Jowning of Condé Nast. He talks about how to develop your international digital footprint when your foundation is in local market mentality. And if you're interested in reading our complete research on global expansion and other topics like these, then head over to digiday.com and sign up for Digiday+. Plus. You'll get the magazines, invites to member events, access to our Slack community, and a steady stream of exclusive research. More on this later, but for now, here's Jamie's session. I'm here today to talk to you about um, adapting your business model in an increasingly digital international marketplace. And I suppose I'm going to pay most attention to this idea of international. Um, we know that business models are changing dramatically and have changed dramatically over the last five or six years for publishers. And they've changed predominantly because of the digital marketplace, but they've also changed now because of how uh, publishers are having to adapt to an international marketplace. And that's really the focus of the next 25 minutes or so, which I'm going to take you through. But I can't really talk about the future of publishing without going back to the past and providing some context as to our history, Condé Nast's history. And it started a long, long time ago, back in 1909, when a chap called Mr. Condé Melrose Nast purchased Vogue. Um, and since then, uh, Vogue and other magazines have been launched in a pretty um, regular pattern over the course of the next 100 years or so, uh, starting with British Vogue, which launched back in 1916 um, and actually just celebrated its 100th anniversary a couple of years ago, which you might remember. Interestingly, on this particular chart, the launch of Vogue.co.uk, which was one of the first glossy magazine publishers to launch a website as long ago as 1996, so over 22 years ago. And then we accelerated pretty quickly at the end of the 90s into the 2000s with a plethora of magazine launches. Our most recent uh, were in Vogue Arabia, uh, which actually launched as an online platform first before it then launched its magazine last year. And as recently as last week, we launched Vogue Poland, uh, which went to market um, on Thursday, as I say, of last week and puts uh, paid to the theory that magazines are dead. They're certainly not. We're still launching. We're still expanding into international markets all around the world. And all of these brands have their digital platforms alongside their print platforms, of course. So this is our global footprint. This is how Condé Nast now operates around the world. In the gray, dark gray boxes are what we call our wholly owned businesses. And in the light gray are our licensed partners. In terms of wholly owned businesses, we operate out of the USA, Mexico and Latin America and the big five in Europe, UK, France, Spain, Germany, and Italy. 
and then out to Russia, India, and then the Far East, Japan, Taiwan, and China. But the reality of our current publishing world, at least until the last 18 months or two years ago, or two years ago is that we operated in pretty much a siloed mentality. Uh, there was very little connectivity between our businesses. There was not necessarily a need to be that connected in the print analog world. Um, but we recognize now in what we call here a world of ever more internets where we have to embrace platforms in China that include Tencent or Alibaba or Baidu, or for us the biggest, which is WeChat. Or in Japan, where Line is a very important part of the media infrastructure. In Russia, it's Yandex. And obviously, in the rest of the world, in Europe and North America, we know the players who are most important to our publishing life. So we recognize that the world is becoming an increasingly connected place. And to have a business which is very much built on the foundations of uh, a local market mentality, it's very hard to develop your digital footprint, your digital story, if you continue to operate in that way. So what does it actually really mean to us, international? What does the word international mean for a business like Condé Nast? Well, <clears throat> the reality is that we've had to address our business in a, in a new and, I suppose, uh, very different way. And it started about 18 months, two years ago, when Jonathan Newhouse, our chairman, appointed a chap called Wolfgang Blau as chief digital officer. He joined us from The Guardian. Um, and his task was relatively straightforward. His task was... Uh, set by him, by Jonathan, it was really to understand what Condé Nast International needs to do to supercharge its digital business. Um, I think most people recognize Condé Nast as pretty much best in class in terms of magazine publishing, but some of our markets around the world were not quite as good in the digital space, and there really was an understanding that we needed to raise our game and to put our digital publishing platforms up alongside our print publishing platforms. And it is quite comfortably the single biggest investment we've ever made in digital. It runs into tens of millions of dollars. Um, but we're doing it because we want to leverage the power of our brands around the world. We have 23 Vogue's currently publishing. We have 19 GQ's. We have many travelers, about nine travelers, I think, around the world. We have Glamour. We have Vanity Fair. We have Wired. All of these are famous international brands, but we very rarely looked at them from an international perspective. We looked at them very much in local market isolation. But as soon as you start rolling up brands across platform and across markets, you begin to see a very different picture. And the conversations that you're having both with your consumer and with your client, your advertiser, begins to change quite dramatically. <clears throat> but the reality, as I've said, is that for many years, Condé Nast has worked in an unconnected, siloed way. Our independent businesses at the local market level, of course, there's been conversations between markets. But the reality is that the conversations have not been joined up, they've not been connected. And over the years, over the course of these many years of publishing, uh, we built up a number of websites to, accompaniment our, to accompany our print platforms. In fact, we built 65 of these websites across the last 30-odd years or so, or 20-odd years probably. But the reality is we had those websites on 25 different CMSs. If you are looking to expand your digital portfolio, if you're looking to enhance your digital portfolio, Having a business where you've got 25 different CMSs to operate is obviously not optimal, and something has to give, something has to change. And that, I suppose, was the first fundamental decision that we made as a leadership group that we needed to have a single platform in order to grow the business as we wanted it to grow. And if we look at 
the next, I suppose, the journey that we're currently on, we have sort of put together a, a, a set of building blocks on which we can see the future of Condé Nast growing and developing. And the foundation for all of these uh, developments is undoubtedly this idea of having a common technology platform, a common CMS. The CMS that we have chosen is one called Copilot. It's a CMS that our American sister company um, have been developing for the last uh, two, probably three years now. Uh, it's a very robust platform. It benefits, obviously, from the experience of two or three years' work of engineering. So we are very fortunate to be able to take what the American company have built and start to adapt it for our own international business. The next layer is what we call the Common Advertising Tools layer. And this is where we begin to develop a set of advertising products, uh, an advertising suite, I suppose, that is consistent across our international portfolio. So any client coming to us who does something in one territory knows full well they can do something exactly the same and replicate that experience in another territory, something which is difficult and has been difficult to do up to this point. We then have a common data layer. This is where we, for the first time, start to look at data across our international portfolio. For many years, we've been looking very carefully at our data from a local level, but we haven't really joined up the dots between our international businesses, looked at our audiences across markets, looked at our client base across markets, looked, about, looked at the, the data behind our international portfolio. And that's something we're beginning to do now. We've started with our Google Analytics data, our audience data, to try and understand what patterns, what trends there are emerging now when you start to look at a Vogue audience in 11 markets, in 18 markets in 23 markets, the same for GQ or for Vanity Fair. So understanding how consumers behave online, what they're reading, what they're consuming, how they're consuming it, what time they're consuming it, is beginning to present patterns to us which we haven't seen before. The next step for us is to build out an international DMP where all of our markets will feed eventually into a single DMP. The French market is currently playing around with the DMP, and the UK, I think, is soon to start inputting their data into that DMP as well. And our data consists in various buckets. It's print subscription data, it's email newsletter data, it could be event data we have from people who've attended our events. So it's quite a rich theme of data, and obviously that data can then inform our decision-making and also present different opportunities to our advertising base. Next layer is the UX layer, and this is really us trying to replicate what we do in magazines. In digital, ensuring that our platform is robust, ensuring that our pages load very quickly, ensuring that the mobile experience is second to none. About 70% of our audience now consumes our content internationally on mobile devices on three-inch screens, so we have to make sure that the mobile is the platform of choice. Um, and we have to make sure that things like galleries um, and the navigation work seamlessly and intuitively at every turn for our audience. And the final layer is what we call the Vogue International Layer, and this is the editorial layer. This only applies to Vogue, but this is the team based in London who is working to support the local markets with additional editorial content. It does not replace local market content. We're not talking about replacing editors in the local markets. The soul of all of our titles, the soul of our brands, is very much at the local market level. But what this department does, run by a lady called Justine Bellavita, is add additional content on top, producing exclusive series of content which is then distributed very easily across the international portfolio. And why are we doing this? We're doing it because we want to grow our audience and we want to have a more engaged audience so that we can at last provide both scale and quality. But this sort of transformative change is difficult to achieve. Um, and there are many cultural nuances when you're operating across many markets. When you are trying to roll out 
a common CMS in one market is difficult enough. When you times that by 11, you can begin to see that there are very many challenges that face us. We have taken the head out of the sand. We are not waiting for a silver bullet to happen. Um, the reality is we have to adapt our business and change the way that we operate so that we can begin to build and grow a successful digital future. But there are many, as I've said, cultural issues which make life difficult and can slow you down. And during this period of transformation, during this period of change, we have identified these four key areas that we need to address and are slowly but surely addressing them. The first area is this idea of silos. I've touched on it already. It's where a traditional business have silos of people, silos of teams, silos even by market, where there is traditional ingrained thinking, entrenched thinking, which needs to be broken down, expanded, needs to be um, completely and utterly changed and transformed into a business where you start to have collaborative conversations for the greater good and not always just about the local market. So that's one significant area that we are trying to address and have been addressing for the last um, 18 months or so. Skills, another clear area of interest for us. And this is really about broadening our skill set to ensure that we have the people in our business who can take our digital uh, future and shape it and guide it and transform it and make sure it's relevant for the next 10, 15, 20 years. So we know that we need to broaden our experience. We know we need to tap into businesses uh, from the digital space and from other areas which we haven't traditionally tapped into before. We also need to be more agile. This is a much used term in the digital space, but we recognize that having a, um, a business which is working only in one way without the ability to change and to transform is a very dangerous place to be. So we have to be more agile, we have to be more nimble, we have to recognize that there's an awful lot of things happening in the market, and we need to be, um, I suppose, structured in a way that we can move and develop with what's happening in the digital marketplace and not get stuck in a rut and be unable to, to move and, and change with uh, developments. And then finally is the consumer relationship. And this is fundamentally important for media publishers, obviously, is this understanding that the relationship with the consumer has changed dramatically, the way that they consume content has changed dramatically. So we have to recognize that fact and start presenting content to them in a way that we might not traditionally have presented before, recognizing that they are consuming our content on multiple myriad platforms, and we have to develop editorial content that suits those individuals on those individual platforms and not just accept that, or not just believe that our content would be seen um, without paying due attention to the platform on which it sits. So those four areas are areas that we've addressed and are addressing and will continue to address as we build out our digital proposition. A quick break here because this is where I tell you more about Digiday Plus. It's our membership product and if you sign up, you'll get our magazine, invites to member events, access to our Slack community and exclusive research. To subscribe, visit digiday.com and you'll find the Digiday Plus tab on the menu bar. Digiday Plus is only $395 a year, but if you want a 25% discount, enter code podcast at checkout. Now, back to the episode. In a world where we're operating across 11 markets, there are some very interesting cultural challenges. This is a graph which I ripped from a, a very entertaining book called The Culture Map, written by Erin Meyer, and it just begins to show how different cultures around the world respond differently in business situations. And forgive if this is somewhat broad brushstrokes, but it does show an interesting um, level of understanding of how various cultures operate. If you look in the bottom right-hand corner, 
Uh, a conversation with Japan, for instance, who are, generally speaking, uh, less expressive and don't like to confront or they like to avoid confrontation in the marketplace, certainly at work, compared to a conversation you might have with the French team, who are far more expressive and also um, are quite happy to confront and to have a stand-up row in the middle of a meeting. It's a per perfectly normal part of French culture to have a confrontation in a business meeting. So the conversations you have to have with two different markets have to be nuanced and have to be treated very respectfully in order to get what you want out of those meetings. And by way of example, and more for amusement factor than anything else, here's an Anglo-Dutch translation guide, which again is ripped from Erin Meyer's uh, culture map. And this is where we have examples of what the British say, what the British actually mean, and then what the Dutch translate it to mean. So just a few examples. So a Brit in an email, perhaps, or at the end of a meeting might say, I was a bit disappointed that. What he actually means is, I'm very upset and angry that. And what the Dutch understand is, it doesn't really matter. What the British say, very interesting. What the British mean, I don't like it. What the Dutch understand, he is impressed. Please think about that some more. It's a bad idea, don't do it, is what the actual Brit means. It's a good idea, keep developing it. The Brit says, I'm sure it's my fault. It's not my fault, is what the British actually means. It's his fault. And my favorite, perhaps, that is an original point of view. Actually means your idea is stupid. He loves my idea. So you can understand that when you're operating in 11 markets across territories, you do have to understand there are significant cultural differences between uh, markets, between businesses, and even within brands themselves. So it's, it's vitally important that you take these into account when operating in an in international marketplace. What we have done at Continental International over the last 18 months, and I've alluded to already, is broaden our skill set. These are just some of the companies where we have tapped into over the course of the last 18 months and started to hire from. There are the classic traditional media players there, of course, but there are also digital pure plays like Instagram um, or ASOS or Booking.com, where we understand that the skill sets that they have been developing over the course of the last three or four years are fundamentally important to the future of our business. So by encouraging them and exciting them about our plans for the future and bringing them on board, we're beginning to develop new ideas and beginning to embrace a new way of working, which is fundamentally important. In any international team, you have to have a genuine mix of international nationalities and have the ability to speak multiple languages. This is a snapshot of how our team currently is um, made up. A huge number of different nationalities represented there. I think it's about 19 or 20 in total, um, which is quite extraordinary. English, obviously, is the dominant language, um, but we do have an extraordinary amount of international uh, colleagues and language spoken, even in my team. We speak uh, nine languages, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten languages across our team. Rather shamefully, I'm the only one who speaks English alone, uh, which is rather embarrassing, and by the end of this presentation, you might even believe that's not a particularly well-spoken language as well, but you can decide. So we've talked about um, cultural nuances, we've talked about the fundamentals that we are currently um, building out to improve our digital um, performance. I'm now gonna to touch very briefly on, I suppose, our consumer relationship, and about audience growth, and why audience growth? Why are we paying so much attention to growing our audiences? And this I'm specifically talking about in digital, really. The most obvious um, reason for growing our audience, um, at least in a commercial 
setting is because we want the inventory to be able to sell to our advertising partners, but it's far deeper than that. We want to be able to provide a sense that we are scaling, that we are improving, that we're enhancing. We want to have that idea of being competitive in the marketplace. Many of our markets still uh, pay a lot of attention to Comscore data, so in order to show that we are building a digital business for the future, we need to show growth. Um, we need to show growth as well, I suppose, to, audience, uh, to widen this audience funnel. We recognize our consumers are consuming content in a very different way than they used to. We need to hit those, that audience in a way that we haven't done traditionally. We need to reach out to a new audience. We need to find a younger audience so that they begin to understand what GQ means, what Vogue means. If we don't get them now when they're young, then we might never get them. So we do need to broaden out that audience quite aggressively. But we're also paying a lot of focus on loyalty. Loyalty in digital space is fundamentally important. We know from the research that we've done across our international portfolio of websites that um, our users, um, our loyal users, are 91% more likely to return to our sites, that they average about three and a half minutes um, when they do come to our site. So having a loyal user is, is incredibly important. Um, we know that a loyal user is more likely to um, generate viral growth. They're more likely to share content. They're more likely to share content on Instagram or on Facebook across our social platforms. And we recognize that we need to talk to them in a very different way than we do perhaps um, that transitory audience who comes and then disappears overnight and never returns again. A returning customer, a returning consumer, is fundamentally important to the, to the growth of our business. They also act as our loyal ambassadors. They are the ones talking about our brands talking to their friends, their peers, their colleagues about our brands. And I don't think you can put too fine a point on the fact that those users are the ones who are going to end up generating the revenue for you as well, alongside the actual growth of that audience. One area that we have focused a great deal on over the course of the last um, 12 months or so is on Instagram. By way of example, this isn't the only focus, obviously, but it's one example which I wanted to share with you. Uh, we hired a lady called Hannah Ray, um, who was Instagram's Instagrammer, and she joined us um, to look at our Instagram portfolio and just to see what we needed to do to improve, to enhance. The first thing she noticed was that we had about 43 different Instagram accounts across just our Vogue portfolio. They're all named differently. Uh, there's no, um, I suppose, naming convention whatsoever. So she started by cleaning up the architecture to make sure that our users understood that we had different um, Instagram channels in different markets, so that individual market could then really express themselves in a way that was local to them and relevant to them, um, and be recognized by our audience that it was a post from Vogue Britain or from Vogue Paris or from Vogue Russia, and they weren't all sort of <coughs> ending up in a melting pot of Vogues and no one could quite understand who was posting what and when. So cleaning up the architecture was the first thing that she did. The second thing she did was to begin to build out global Instagram content. Um, and this was the first global story that she produced. Um, it was a behind-the-scenes with Bowman, with Oliver Rasting, the creative director. Um, and it was something very simple in its aspiration, very simple in its conceit, I suppose. But it was the first time that we published Instagram content, which was then effectively given to the markets for them to use on their Instagram channels. And the content is the same. But each individual market, as you can see here, Vogue Russia, British Vogue, and Vogue Germany, just adapted it with anim animation, with, with headlines, um, with cartoons, with characters, with emojis, just to give it that local market feel. Since this experiment, which was phenomenally successful and generated huge amounts of interest across the international portfolio, Hannah Ray and her team now produce about four or five Instagram stories a month, which go out to our global community, allowing our global um, editors to... Um, 
develop their own ideas whilst knowing they're getting some good content from the center. I'm just going to finish now and talk a little bit about our international advertising solutions. And this is obviously where my role is particularly relevant. Um, and I just want to tell you a little bit about how we're set up and what we're doing and how we have changed the business now that we are, um, uh, I suppose, a, a department at the center of our business which didn't exist 18 months ago. So our department is now somewhat imagined to be called CNI Commercial. And our vision is straightforward. It's to meet and exceed the needs of our advertising partners. That's what we are here to do. Um, and we are, for the first time, facilitating what we call these global media conversations, where a client wants to do something in more than one territory. We now have a department um, capable of handling that conversation and delivering against that client's needs. We are platform agnostic, we're brand agnostic, and we are market agnostic. So it could be GQ, it could be Vogue, it could be Wired. It could be any of our markets around the world. It could be any of our platforms around the world. But we're there to facilitate these conversations with our client base. And the USP for us, I suppose, is that we are a single point of contact in a multi-market organization, but we are capable of tapping into our local market talent, into our local market creativity, so we get the best of both worlds. We can centrally organize and coordinate, but we can also use um, the talent that we have in the local markets in order to supercharge our commercial proposition. We have various departments within CNI Commercial, all of which feed into each other. A sales function, of course, a project management function. We have a programmatic arm. Uh, we've recently merged our seven ADEX accounts into a single account, so we can now transact across various markets around the world. We have a data function. We have a very important media planning function, which allows us to present seamless media plans back to our client base, sometimes uh, you know, incorporating 25 tabs, which is not easy to read, but that's the nature of an international media plan. We have a business intelligence unit, and we have a creative unit, which essentially is there to help create content, which our advertisers want to then distribute across our network and our portfolio of websites around the world. I thought it might just be worth finishing with a quick case study, uh, which provides both the sort of creative relevance, I suppose, in an international uh, portfolio, and also the global distribution mechanic that I've talked about before. This was a campaign we worked on for Gucci last year. It was uh, with GQ, and it was entitled The Performers. And <coughs> the solution really was one which was created very much in partnership with Gucci. It was a genuine collaboration between GQ and the Gucci brand. It was a very basic idea, a simple idea, uh, built around the creation of five individual videos. But we worked with Gucci to identify five uh, different individuals, I suppose talent, um, and those individuals were from various markets around the world, key markets in Gucci's eyes. We had um, a Chinese architect, no, sorry, a Chinese artist called Zheng Huan. We had a Japanese architect called Yusha Ishigami, um, a um, Bobby Gillespie from Primal Scream, who was a, who was a Brit, a Scot. Uh, we had Massimo Batura, Italian chef, and we had Charlie Heaton, who's an actor based in New York. So we had this individual talent. We then said to them, what destination around the world inspired you? Um, and what we wanted to do is go to that destination, film them in their chosen place of inspiration, and create this video series in order to distribute across our network of sites. Typically, you ask a, um, a celebrity, a talent, where they want to go, and they decide to fly around the other side of the world. So um, we went from Japan to the Yucatan jungle, 
Zhang Huan decided to go to Death Valley, Bobby Gillespie to Tangier, Charlie Heaton in New York stayed close to home, as did Massimo Batura. And all of this was coordinated by a team in London, a central team in London, and that content was collated. Um, the video was shot, obviously. The assets were pumped back to the UK. A native article was built, and then that content and those series of assets were then distributed across seven markets, including the US, UK, Italy, China, Korea, Japan, and Australia. We made sure in terms of distribution and in terms of, um, in terms of views that we put more focus on the individual um, local talent. So Jushi Ishigami in Japan, we made sure that that video was front and center. The other four videos were shown as well, but the front and center video was the Japanese video. What we found out of interest was that very often um, one of the other international superstars was more popular in one of the local markets. So it was something we didn't expect to see, but we did see. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Jamie. That was really interesting. Loads of stuff there. Um, something I just um, was interested in, just listening to you talking about the cultural nuances and all the differences with the international offices. I wondered, have you um, have you picked up on specific markets that you're present in having more of a speciality um, or being more advanced in, say, video or mobile creation or a certain area? And are you finding that you're learning from each other completely. with your offices? Completely. I mean, none of our markets are exactly the same place is the reality. Some markets are further ahead in certain disciplines. Other markets are further behind. Uh, we take our lead very often um, from the U.S. I think, you know, the U.S. sister company is normally, I don't know, 12 to 18 months ahead of most of uh, markets around the world. Um, but then we have, you know, particular strengths in engineering in India. We have particular strength in video in Italy. Um, for instance, so we do, and, and in social in Italy and social in France, so we do have this idea that we should be sharing best practice and, we, uh, and part of the, the building of this team is to ensure that we can, um, I suppose, share that best practice as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Mm -hmm. How far, that was a, a huge journey that you've been on, obviously, centralising and um, streamlining everything. How far would you say that you are on that journey? Um, <clears throat> I would say we're probably about halfway through. Mm -hmm. um, I think it always takes longer. The, the, the preparation for this journey is the, is the hard part. And we've done, I suppose, what you would call the hard yards. And now uh, we are on this very fast migration program where we're migrating uh, the majority of our websites to this common platform, whilst also um, bringing other efficiencies across the international business. So a lot of the thinking, a lot of the strategy, a lot of the vision has been done, um, but now the actual um, work is, is being realised. So uh, we're probably about halfway through. And are you seeing revenue uh, changes as a, as a result already? Are you seeing um, benefits there, or is it a bit early for that? We're seeing absolutely. Um, you know, uh, the local markets are you know, doing business as they always have done. Centrally, um, we now have a team who is, is, is generating revenues which didn't exist before, so absolutely having conversations with, with clients. When you talk about 23 Vogues around the world as opposed to one single Vogue in one market is a very different conversation, so it's definitely opening up uh, conversations that we haven't had previously. Finally, um, you, you showed, I was trying to look at it back to front um, through there, but... Um, you, you showed that you're, uh, you know, programmatic and your, uh, your data initiative and your advertising and all of that together. I just wondered, can you just give an idea of, of where your revenue is split now in terms of programmatic and content? Too complicated an answer. Okay. Um, it varies market by market. Yeah. Um, you know, we've seen a big increase in programmatic across each of our markets, undoubtedly. There has been that shift. Um, we've seen a, a, you know, a very rapid expansion in our custom solution business, our branded native content business, undoubtedly. Um, and, you know, those are the two significant trends without giving 
percentages, which I couldn't give you anyway. Okay. I might not even I had to you. ask. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much, Jamie. That was really great. Pleasure. Thank you. That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please share it forward. How you can do that is by leaving us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. It helps our podcast to be discovered. If you have any feedback, email me at aditi at digiday.com or find me on Twitter. Thanks again, and I'll see you soon with another episode.